0: Welcome to uh, Eastlake. That was my daughter on the screen uh, doing the video, her first time ever doing that. Uh, Mom was gone all week and dad had to come up with creative ways to spend time. Uh, so that was, that took up about three hours. It was time well spent. Uh, we are on week two. If you're a guest with us today, uh, thanks for checking us out. Um, whether it was a mailer uh, that was a week ago and, and you're just procrastinate a little bit, that's great, uh, or invitation of a friend, or you were just driving in the parking lot thinking antique shops were open, and you're like, are they giving out free coffee? I'm in. So whatever it was that brought you in, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, We kicked off a brand new teaching series last week uh, called uh, Greener Pastures, and the tagline with it is a series on divorce, breakups, and your mom being right uh, about them. Uh, It's uh, really a a series about hope because we figured that all of these situations are sort of prime breeding grounds uh, for a sense of hopelessness. Uh, and the question that we addressed was: Where do we turn to when hope feels hollow? When people say things like, "Well, don't worry, there's other fish in the sea." Well, don't worry, um, you'll be fine. Uh, don't, but don't you know? Don't worry, there's green. You got to turn your eyes towards greener pastures. There's there's better things. When God closes the door, He opens up another one. Whatever. Um, and when that when those sort of comments. Uh, ring hollow for you and hope feels like I, I just don't know what you know what to I'm trying to make sense of, of, of this situation I'm trying to I want to be positive I don't want to be like a negative person but I just I'm not sure exactly how to do this and what do we place our hope and so that was week one uh, last week we, we kicked off the conversation for it and immediately after the 11 o'clock service I grabbed my phone which I never have on me I put it in the back because too often I have people in my life, some who attend this church, will text me while I'm speaking like this and be like, your fly's open. And then I'm, and I'm a wreck. And so, I, and I, I know it's not true, but he, one of them's here. Travis is here. So I just know that I can't, I can't have my phone on me. I, can't, I don't even wear an iWatch anymore because of the exact same reason. Anyways, so my phone's over there, and it's on airplane mode. Um, and so then I go out in the lobby, and I'm, I'm Saying hello to people, and I turn my phone off of airplane mode, and text messages and and you know emails start coming through, and the, the whole Kobe news uh, comes through, um, and I'm sitting in the lobby. I just got done talking about uh, hope, and then uh, this guy dies. This guy that was like, you know, part of our childhood. We all kind of knew. Even if you're not a Lakers fan, you kind of knew um, Kobe. And uh, like some of you, I spent the rest of the day in shell shock. Uh, I watched SportsCenter for like an hour, uh, even, uh, like two hours, and it was just a repeat of the first hour the first time or whatever, uh, getting mildly emotional. And again, I'm not even really like an NBA guy. I'm really not a Lakers guy, and I'm not even a Kobe fan, to be honest with you. He was like hero ball, not a, not a huge fan. But maybe it was the fact that he was only 41. Maybe it was the fact that his 13-year-old daughter you know, or um, seven other people or a com- combination of all of those things. But I watched it as, like many of you, all of the different tributes uh, coming in. And I found myself realizing like we are in an interesting era where we participate in communal mourning um, via social media. We, we, uh, we want to watch um, other people deal with try to people who knew whoever happened, died or whatever. And it's not just Kobe. It's other things. But we've, this is a new spot where we used to comfort just our, you know, both people that shared a home with us or uh, maybe close friends and family on a phone call. Now it's like the world and <laughs> it's kind of, it's, it's a weird deal. Uh, we got invited to dinner on uh, Tuesday night with uh, a couple, a family in the church, Matthews, who are here as well. Uh, and I texted Sean when he invited me on Monday, and I said, we'll come as long as the game's on. The Lakers game is on the screen. That's a conditional for me having dinner over at your house. And I know he's a sports nut, so I knew he would understand it. Uh, and he said, uh, of course it, it will be. And so uh, we went over there, but the game got postponed, as, as some of you know. It got postponed to Friday night. So on Friday night, we, we watched it, and tuned in an hour early. I haven't watched the Lakers game in 10 years. I have no idea. A uh, long time. Uh, and I was like scheduling my week out to watch this game because I wanted to see how LA and the community and the Lakers fans and, and just the sports world in general uh, mourns that, that loss, deals with lack of hope, et cetera, et cetera, on, on all of this. So um, I watched, uh, they showed the the stadium prior to people coming in, Kobe's shirts and jerseys on every seat in the building. Uh, LeBron had a speech that he wrote and then tossed away and then just started talking about it. And then Usher uh, led the entire crowd. I don't know how many people fit in the Staples Center. Led the entire crowd in uh, a rendition, uh, which was at best. But anyways, amazing grace. Amazing, like this very... Super Christian theme in LA. <laughs> There's like thousands of people talking about how God's grace is like amazing and gets us. It, it, it was so interesting to me from a cultural like hub where it's like very, very differentiated between this is what you do in your private life and however you want to worship. I mean, I believe in a freedom to worship, but like, don't bring that mess in here, right? And then all of a sudden, when we're not exactly sure what to do, we lean back into religion because religion helps make sense of things and make sense of hope. We want hope. We're not entirely sure where to find it, and so we do We do this. Now, this tr- plays out in divorce. It plays out in loss. Um, one of the, the big things that we've kind of believed about Eastlake is that people... Are oftentimes more more open to checking out of church uh, when they're going through times of transition or uh, uh, times of tension in their life when troubles kind of happening or whatever. When people go through divorce, they 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 like maybe maybe church is uh, will be a help. It's not going to fix it. We know that. We're smart enough to figure that out. But like maybe there's something there. I need to work on myself right now, and a lot of times that includes a coming back to religion even though we've maybe always been kind of like held it at an arm's distance or when loss occurs we're like we go to the funeral and there's a pastor there and there's a ceremony and then we think maybe I should do something like that because we're on a desperate quest to make sense and meaning of a seemingly hopeless and meaningless situation i mean that's that's what we heard over and over again from these these uh, commentators about, we're trying to make sense of what happened and it's never gonna make any sense. They know that. Um, my daughter even came home this week from, from school on like, I don't know, Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday. And she'd known that I was you know, watching this stuff and don't talk to me, daddy's watching Kobe's stuff right now, right? Um, so uh, bad parent, whatever. <laughs> and she, she came up to me later and said, dad, did you know that the last text that sent from Kobe's phone was at 824? 824. His both of his numbers that he wore. And uh and I was like, I don't know if that's true. So don't Google it and be like your daughter's wrong. She probably was, but it doesn't matter. Um and I said, I I didn't. And she says, and did you know that Trey Young, who plays for the Atlanta Hawks, wore number eight, they were friends. He wore number eight on his jersey that night, and he scored 45 points on 13 of 24 shooting. He became the only player to score 45 points with under 25 shot attempts against the Washington Wizards, except for one other player Kobe Bryant. And I'm like, Kobe Bryant? Kobe, I, I guessed it, London. Didn't I guess it? I got it right. And she goes, He took 20, this is Trey Young, he took 24 shots, Kobe's number, and shot 81% from the foul line, just like when Kobe dropped 81 against the Raptors in 2006. And I said, You weren't alive in 2006. Where are you? Who are you? <laughs> And what have you done with my daughter? She didn't say all of those things, but she said something along those lines, trying to do the same thing that we a lot of times do we talk ourselves into circumstantial coincidences because we're so creatures we're creatures that hope we laugh we we can laugh about it in isolation out of here and then yet when we're in the middle of it we're always trying to like connect some dots because we just want things to make sense we are creatures of hope so when karma or sorry when, when garbage happens to us we have a natural inclination to hope which is why in certain situations we'll uh, when things are really down, we'll say, well, things can't get much worse than they currently are. And um, that is another example of hope, hope that the universe owes you some sort of a fair shake. If somebody says, oh, so you believe in karma, you might say that that sounds a little touchy-feely. So no, but even though you might never attach those words to it, your hope is essentially that. I'm a decent person. I deserve a decent life, right? Um, It can't get much worse than this. I think I'm probably due for something better. And that assumes something. It assumes a benevolent being in control of things somehow, a God, for lack of a better word maybe, if you're not religious, a God who, as long as you're good, whatever that means, owes you something. And we can go through, and if we don't really challenge ourselves in thinking that is a common default in our era era, or whatever, Uh, But for some, a belief in a deity won't do, and the option that I just described feels like religion is a human construct, much like a crutch of sorts to kind of get through the feebleness of life to be able to deal with reality. So the better option, the one you get to when you've been around long enough like I have or read all the books that I have or been educated enough or awakened to a higher sense of reality, is to essentially bail on hope or to mature beyond it, perhaps. This is the quote that I introduced last week from uh, Albert Camus in the myth of Sisyphus. Hope as a rule makes many a fool. It is far better to try to remain on the solid ground of reality to think clearly and not to hope anymore. And if that sounds fatalistic and pessimistic, so be it. The solid ground of reality is motivation enough. To be alive is enough. We should be happy enough to be alive. The response of Christianity that I'm hoping to communicate over the next couple of weeks is ultimately a critique of that first idea to say that there's something flawed with that, But not an overreaction like the second one. Hope isn't limited to a place that we go and we die, provided again that we're good enough, whatever that means. In something that offers us nothing for the here and now, uh, but just you wait, it's different than that. According to Paul, one one of the letters to the first century church, there's more solid footing than that. Not a place, but a person is the foundation for why we have a reason to hope. Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The reason that you and I and we together can have hope in the midst of loss, a loss of a marriage, a loss of career, a loss of motivation, loss of life expectations, is because Christ in you. Okay, that's fine, but one what does that even mean? Two, what does it look like? And three, could this be just another example of Paul doing the same thing that London was doing? Taking coincidences, Jesus died, then there's stories of his resurrection, and making that sort of meaningful to this, right? So, that's the game plan for the rest of the series. Today, we'll focus on Is Paul just assuming something that was never really in play, like he made, he's doing what we all do at times because we're creatures of hope? Or is it something more than that? Next week, uh, this idea of what does it even mean, and then what does it look like in practical real life? All right. The art of management is moving from knowing how to do something to knowing how to get others to do it for you. That's the role of managers. You could do it, but you're one person. Into, in order to exponentially, you know, be more efficient in what you're trying to do, you hire managers uh, to get people to do things for you. Not because you're lazy, although, yeah, sometimes that's in play, but because you're trying to, again, multiply your efficiency. But if you ever ask somebody to do something, to take over a project for you while well, you stepped away to do something else, and when you returned, they asked with like real true sincerity, is this what you asked? And you have to think of a politically correct way to say are you some sort of an idiot or something? <laughs> you th- you think this is what I asked you to do. This is not at all what I asked you to do. A genuine fear of mine because of the role that I have as like a, a, a pastor and, and uh, I try and take scripture, make it relevant for, and, and you know, it's written 2,000 years ago. It's hard to be able to be like, this is what this means in twenty twenty one They didn't have the things that we're going through. They had things that we are not going through. But anyways, um, a big fear of mine is someday being held accountable, uh, whatever that might look like after this and standing before God and, and being like, I hope this is, this is what you meant Right? Like when I was when I was talking about this, when I was talking about hope and it being found in a person, that's like what you meant, right? And to hear that is not at all what I meant. So you some sort of an idiot or something. Um, it's a bitch my responsibility. I thought so, but my wife talked me into this. She I, I ran this by her, she sees all my notes, and I thought differently, but uh, imagine if Paul assumed something that Jesus never meant in the first place. And and not because he's trying to be deceitful. But because, again, we're creatures of hope attempting to make meaning where there is an absence of hope. We're trying to do something with it. Um, Jesus never wrote any parts of the Bible, but imagine if he did. Um, I'm kind of glad that he didn't because then you'd have, like, the Jesus part of the Bible and, like, everything else. You know, like, here's what Paul wrote, but, like, obviously we're going to focus on this. Uh, What we have of Jesus are four witness accounts. Some of them eyewitness, some of them heard from a friend, but verifiable or whatever. Um, Essentially, four individuals, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who say basically that here's my version of the story. Here's what I know about Jesus and his time that he spent with his disciples, the things that he said, the places he went the people that he healed, the stories that he told, the parables that he um, tried to communicate, and the miracles that were performed in his name. Just before he's arrested by the Roman authorities in the Garden of Gethsemane, an account which, by the way, makes it into all four uh, versions of the Jesus story, he gives a long speech to his group of immediate and most passionate followers um, from the church tradition. They're known as the disciples or the 12 disciples or whatever. In John chapter 14 through 16, we see what um, Dallas Willard calls his commencement speech. You've been to a commencement speech, right? Graduation, high school, college, or whatever. You're leaving from here. There's gonna, it's, it's a life transition speech. It's, I'm saying this to um, celebrate what we've been through, but also prepare you for what's coming up next. The summary is that uh, for, for this s- sort of thing, everything's about to get a lot more difficult for you. I'm telling you this so that when you're in the middle of it, you don't fall into despair and not find hope in this. It's a message of preparing them for hope. So we're, we're trying to address: Is Paul did Paul pull something from the situation that Jesus never met in the first place, or was Jesus about this in the about this originally? And this is just Paul expanding what he heard about Jesus. And so we go back to this passage and we see he gathers his disciples and starts talking to them about a bunch of things, preparing them for a situation that was imminent, because he's about to leave. He's about to, his absence is about to be felt in a very tangible way, and things are going to be different while I'm gone, and I don't want you to freak out about it. I mentioned at the very top of this uh, talk, my wife was out of town um, this week. She and her uh, family, her mom and dad and sister, uh, went to Vegas for five days and left me home with four kids. So, um, but before she left, she did a commencement speech. <laughs> she gathered all of the kids into the living room. She, she got me in there, she prepared, she's like, here's, all, here's where the food is, here's where the health guards are, here's their doctor, here's their this, that, yeah. I'm like, yeah, 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 Got it got it, got it, got it. So then she brings all of the kids and her speech, you guys had so much crossover with John 14 through 16. <laughs> I'll read a few of them for you that I pulled out that I vividly remember. Number one, where I am going, you cannot follow. <laughs> She looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to a place, you cannot follow me there. Number two, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. (laughs) It's for your good that I'm, I'm glad you're liking this. I was dying as I was writing these, you guys. I'm reading through 14 through 16, I'm like crying. I'm like, this is going to be so funny. All right. This is my command in my absence, that you love one another. Very true. Next one. While I'm gone, the Father will give you whatever you ask for. So true. (laughs) I promise that that actually occurred. And then last, I'll come back someday, and when I do, I'm bringing gifts. That is all included if you want to go back and read 14 through 16. That's the kind of language that's in there, or you can always just think about this. All right. And at the end of 16, then, it comes into kind of his closing statements um, for his commencement speech. In verse 29, it says this, then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. There would be several times through their time with Jesus that Jesus would say, what are people saying about me? Who do people think that I am? And they would say, well, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then then he would say to them, well, who do you think that I am? He's trying to convince them, like, I'm not just a really good teacher. Like, I'm literally God incarnate, and I'm trying to make you... It feels obvious to us as we read it, because we know the Easter story, we know some things. But I mean, come on, imagine the difficulty of getting your mind wrapped around that. Like, what would you have to say, what would I have to say to convince you of that? Like, and even one of them is James, the brother of Jesus. Like, I I say this every Easter. What would your brother have to do or say to convince you that he was God? I mean, coming back from the death is a good start, but there's still work to be done there. Like, I know too much about you. So this is John's way of illustrating this was a moment where we begin to put the pieces together a little bit about the identity of Christ. Like, I, um, we, I'd like to say that we were all there, but sometimes we can say things that were, say that we're there and then, but not really get fully there. Anyways, and back to the issue of, of management, this is them saying, we know now what you want us to do, Right? Ah, we get it. You've spent enough time with us. You're you're telling us I'm leaving, and in my absence, I want you to take over the mission that I've kind of started of bringing heaven to earth and raising up people who will do this for you and do this with you. Um, Now we understand what you want us to do. Verse 31, do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, and in fact, has, has come, When you will be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone for my father's with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. This is literally the end phrase, and then it goes back into narrative about him praying in the garden, and then the arrest takes place, and then the trial and all the other stuff. All right? Um, here's my. Here, he goes. Here's my promise to you. Here's what I know you're going to go through in life: pain and suffering and things that don't make sense, and and husbands who are going to cheat, and and wives who are going to fall out of love, and and kids who are punks, and and schools that are terrible. And and here's what here's what I promise: things are not going to go good for you. And I know specifically he's talking about in this way persecution for what they believe, and, and, and you know, it was dangerous to be a Christian in those, in those times. Um, I, I understand that, but I, I think there's, like, it's an all-encompassing thing. He's, he's gathering a, a frame. He's pulling from a bunch of the Psalms and, and teachings here to be like, no matter what you go through, don't forget um, I'm with you, and I've, I've overcome the world in this way. William Barclay says that we learn four things about Jesus from this closing paragraph of his commencement address. And if you're taking notes, here's the four you should write down. One, the loneliness of Jesus. He knew it was coming. They're about to scatter. The circumstances would change. Things would get a lot more difficult than they currently were. Hope would be lost. Despair would set in. Coming soon was pain and suffering that they would struggle to make sense of. And he knows, he knows why we sometimes leave. He knows what it feels like to be lonely, to be abandoned because of the pain and the circumstances of life that we go through. Sometimes in the good we leave, but in the bad we just, we're just so lost we just we leave. So he understands this. Number two, the forgiveness of Jesus. In that moment he didn't reproach them and afterwards he wouldn't hold it against them. He loved human beings in all of their weaknesses. He saw them and loved them as they were. It was not a surprise to him that they were about to betray him, and some of them deny that they even knew him and abandon him when his time of greatest need, supposedly. But They didn't know he didn't need it, but whatever. Um, if you've ever left because the pain became too great, the suffering uh, just never made enough sense to you. And maybe it still feels like that. That's why you're here. Um, He's not holding that against you. Forgiveness is never off the table. Forgiveness is never off the table. Number three, the sympathy of Jesus. Uh, There is one verse in this passage that feels almost a little bit out of place. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. I'm telling you about your upcoming failures (laughs) so that you'll have a peace about it. So that when you reflect on this, you'll know that I knew the entire time. What does he mean with this? If he had not foretold the weakness of the disciples afterwards when they realized how they'd failed him, they might well be driven to utter and absolute despair. It's as if he said this. I know it's going to happen to you, and you must not think that your disloyalty has come as a surprise to me. I knew it was coming. It doesn't make any difference to my love. When you think about it afterwards, when you read about it in John's version of the story, don't despair. I don't know what kind of ups and downs, roadblocks, twists and turns your life has taken in regards to religion and hope and Jesus and faith and whatever else, but none of it came as a surprise to him, and forgiveness is never off the table, and he gets it, and he understands it. He's giving them the gift of peace, the gift of comfort. Um, yeah, again, that nothing surprises me, nothing plays out in ways that shock me. And finally, the gift of Jesus, number four the gift of Jesus. Very soon, something was going to be um, unanswerably proved to the disciples. They're going to see that the world could do its worst to Jesus and still not defeat him. And he says, the victory, which I will win, can be your victory too. And exactly what does that mean? Again, we're going to deal with some of that in the weeks to come. But the promise of Jesus in this moment is that the world did its worst to me, and I emerged victorious The life can do its worst to you, and you too can emerge victorious. This would have been a message that would have been a big central part of the apostles' belief systems. So when Paul writes to a church in Colossae a few years later, this would have been in the forefront of his mind. He promises to his disciples That's why Christ, the mystery of Christ, of being in Christ is in you, the hope for glory, the hope that someday um, we experience the glory of uh, knowledge, the glory of understanding how these pieces, even though we may never know right now, um, the glory of um, an ending that we prefer or want. This memory of Jesus has to be at the forefront of his mind when he writes that letter to them and says those phrases, Jesus, is this what you had? I imagine that Paul is almost saying this or thinking this or has this at the forefront of his mind. Jesus, is this what you had in mind when you left the disciples with that speech? Again, that tension of, am I doing this right? Like that management issue, like you said this, but then like, is this what you really meant? And I imagine that Jesus would look at him and be like, that's exactly, exactly what I meant. That being offered to you is a promise of pain and suffering in the world. Don't be surprised when it comes. I'm not surprised when you fall away as a result of it. Forgiveness is always on the table, and I'm giving you the gift of the promise that no matter what you go through in life, I've overcome the world. An invitation in to that. But who knows, I could be completely wrong. <laughs> so next week we discover a little bit more about what it means to be in Christ. What it means, what what in the world would his the overcoming death have to do with us? I hope you'll be a part of that. Let's pray. Father, um, this commencement address to the disciples was no doubt inspiring for them. It would be something that would they would probably reflect on post all of the stories that they knew and after you're um, in your absence, things that would replay in their minds, possibly inspiring them to do and become bold uh, bold about their faith and live life a, a certain way that's definitely reflected in the fact that many of them would go on to die for what they believed. I pray that it would do something similar for us and in inspiring us to live lives um, based on your teachings and your truths, even when they come into conflict with uh, kind of how we're normally taught to act in status quo, Um, I I pray that we would, uh, whatever hopeless situation that we find ourselves in, be comforted not by like circumstantial things coming together, but by a firmness of a promise that your son made uh, to his disciples at the time, and and we hold on to the hope that it means something for us too. Give us the wisdom to know what it looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name. Amen. Amen.